Right. Hey, thank you so much, worship team. Really appreciate them and appreciate your singing. Thank you for, uh, for carrying me along this morning as well. Really encouraged by, by all of you. Now, you found us in part two of a seven-part series that I am uh, entitling uh, For God So Loved the Terrorist. And as Greg uh, previewed already this morning, this is essentially a, a study on the, the biblical book of Jonah in the Old Testament. And uh, it's a story that uh, you probably know, even if you're not a Bible person or a church person, or you haven't even um, been in church for, for years or years, and you're just here this morning for whatever reason, you probably know the story of Jonah. It's that big of a story. And sometimes, because it's so big like that, it can be so um, hard to get your mind around it, especially if you are someone who grew up in the church or grew up in the faith. And as you are getting older, you start to ask questions that grown-ups ask that kids don't. Questions like, did this really happen? Is this really a true story? And can I learn anything from it? Or is this primarily a story that is reserved for children's time and for the nursery? Or is this actually adult stuff for my adult life? So we tried to address that question last week, and I wanted to encourage you, please don't ever hesitate to ask adult questions of the faith. Like, I think it can handle it. And if we can't ask adult questions of the faith, then you may as well leave it. Like, it has to be strong enough to handle and bear the weight of your soul. So don't be afraid to ask those hard questions. I want to encourage you, especially if you're a young adult or in junior, senior high, whatever, and you're starting to wonder about these things, don't ever wonder all alone. Like, ask those questions to people that you can trust, and it's okay to ask deep questions of the faith. So we tried to address that last week. I'm not going to re-teach last message last week today, but I want to tell you that essentially I'm teaching this book with the main point in mind, and I tried to make the point last week that whether you take this book to be very literal and a historical event or something that is a, an extended parable, the point of the story, I believe, remains. And either way, I believe you can hold to the value and the inerrancy, as I call it, or the authority of the Bible, almost no matter where you come down. And so I will teach this book with this primary question in mind, because I think the question that comes at the end of the book is the guiding principle for the whole thing, and it is a clincher of a question and a difficult one that God asks Jonah that I want to ask you, and I want you to ask me. Of all the people that we see, and here's the ending question, God asks this question to Jonah when he's sitting there lamenting that God is having compassion on Nineveh. He says, should I not have compassion on this city? Jonah, why don't you give me a good reason why I should not have compassion? And it's that question that guides the entire book and is the framework for thinking through everything, whether you think it's an extended story or actual real historical events, whatever. The point of the whole thing goes up to the end of chapter 4, the end of the book, and that is the guiding principle throughout the whole thing. Should I not have compassion? And so last week, we were left off in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Listen, you are welcome if you want this morning to live fact check me on the book of Jonah. That seems to be in vogue these days, so you're welcome to do that um, by looking in your Bible as I teach through it. But this morning, this is a story, and so I'm going to tell you the story. But I'm going to tell you the story from the Bible itself. So you're welcome to, if you want to, you can turn to the book of Jonah in, in a Bible that you maybe have uh, on your lap, or maybe there's a Bible around you in the pew. You're welcome to grab that. And if you don't own a Bible, consider that our gift to you this morning, or maybe it's on your device or whatever. But if you want to look through Jonah with me, go for it. Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 to 17 is where I'm going to tell the story from this morning, but I'm primarily telling a story this morning because this is exactly what it is, okay? And by the way, I'm 
recounting things from the NIV, the New International Version of the Bible. But we left off Jonah here last week. In Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, Jonah, a prophet, a Hebrew prophet, who is used to solid ground and dry land, decided that he would get on a boat and go the opposite direction to the town of Tarshish to get away from the command of God to go to Nineveh because he didn't really want to do that at all and deliver to the Ninevites the opportunity to repent. Because God said in chapter 1 verse 2, he said, go tell them and preach against them. Meaning like, I want you to go give them another chance. Jonah, knowing that these um, Assyrians, or the capital of Assyria was Nineveh at the time, that the Ninevites were terroristic and they had blood on their hands of all kinds of people, he didn't want to give them another chance and didn't have compassion on them. And his interest was, instead of going there, I'm going to go over here to Tarshish. And so what he does as a land-loving Hebrew is he gets on a boat and goes to Tarshish. And so in verse 4, we pick up the story of him on the boat, and he's been on the boat, and he pays the fare to get on the boat in this merchant vessel that's carrying all kinds of commodities, most likely. We're not told what is on the boat, but we can assume as most merchant vessels would carry various commodities, perhaps some lumber, perhaps some uh, jewels or jewelry, uh, perhaps some cloth or fine linen, uh, whatever needs transported from one area of the world to the other. And this is on board in the form of barrels or crates or just bags or sacks of things. It's evidently a big enough boat that Jonah gets on that he's able to go down into the cargo hold of this boat to take a rest. And so the sailors who are normal sailors used to doing this for years and years, this is their job, professional sailors are taking care of the job of getting the ship from one port to the other. And along the way, they encounter a storm so significant that it scares the life out of them. So significant that they start to, quote-unquote, freak out. It's such a significant storm that we have to kind of understand what's happening. You have to imagine this storm that, as the Bible tells us, it threatened to break up the vessel, is what the NIV says. It threatened to tear apart the very wooden boat that they were in. And so imagine what kind of storm would it take to scare the life out of seasoned sailors? Probably more than just a passing thunderstorm. We're talking now about pounding rain, howling winds. We're talking about the currents of the sea dropping down into 10-foot swells and back up again. I don't know how deep they were. I don't know if any of you ever seen deadliest catch or things of that nature when things go crazy on the open water, but that is the kind of thing that we are dealing with. Darkness, we're dealing with waves crashing up and over, sea um, spray coming onto the deck, and you hear the creaking of the boards trying to come apart because the text describes the vessel as trying to break apart. And in that, it's enough that it freaks the sailors out. This is a real, real problem. And what they do is they do what people do when they're super afraid. They finally pray. And as the text says, each one of them decides to pray to their own God. It's kind of like whack a mole, like maybe we'll hit the right one who is causing this storm to happen. And so each sailor 
prays to his own God, trying to get some help in this situation. And then at the same time they're praying, they also decide our vessel is too heavy. We're more of a liability when we have all this stuff on. And so this is such a bad storm that we're going to take all of this stuff that we've been entrusted with, the things that give us our livelihood, and now we're going to take our reputation as reputable deliverers of goods from one port to the other. And we're going to take all this stuff people entrusted us with, and we are going to throw it in the sea. Sorry about that, guys. We got to. We have to lighten the vessel. And so they go around the top of the deck, throwing everything off into the ocean that they can. Then the captain, who has to give the official approval to do such things, he knows we need to get down to the cargo hold to get the rest of the cargo. And so he goes down the steps into the cargo hold, and there he sees Jonah asleep in the middle of this storm. Now, probably at the beginning it lulled him to sleep, but whatever, he's now sleeping in the middle of this chaos in what the Bible calls a deep sleep. Now, I don't know if you've ever been woken from a deep sleep, but it can be disorienting, can it? All of a sudden, you're awake, and it's a crisis. I mean, this is hard to get your mind around what's happening. You were just enjoying a great sleep, dreaming about rainbows, unicorns, whatever you dream about. And all of a sudden, you're awake. This is happening to Jonah. And so the captain comes down. He sees Jonah down there. He's like, Jonah. And then the Hebrew word that he says next is the word we translate in English called arise or awake or get up. And it's the very same word that God used to speak to Jonah in verse 2 to say, Arise, get up, go to Nineveh. So I don't know if Jonah thinks he's having a dream again, like I just heard God say, Arise. The captain says, Get up. Like, we need you. Like, all hands on deck, Jonah. What I really want you to do first, and he says, Arise, get up. Please pray to your God. I mean, we're all doing it. We haven't hit it yet, so please, you pray to your God and give us a hand up here, would you? And so, Jonah accompanies the captain up to the top of the deck where the rest of the sailors are, and up there, there is no relent from the storm. It continues to batter their ship with the wind and the waves and the rain and the darkness and the swells of the ocean. And they decide, we have got to do something. All the cargo is off. We don't know what's happening. So they decide to do something that in that time, the ancient Near East, was considered a fair and equitable solution to figuring things out that were beyond their control. They said, we're going to cast lots and figure out who is responsible for where we're at. And so they cast lots, and I don't know how they did that in the middle of a storm, but they did that, and the Bible says that the lot was cast to Jonah. And he drew the short straw. And then the sailors... We're like, Jonah. And they started immediately asking him questions. What do you do? What land are you from? What are your people? What, how did you do that? They explained us, and immediately the text reads with quick, 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 quick questions. They start peppering him, and I would too. Like, we don't have time to hear your life story, Jonah, but please, before we all die, can you please tell us more about what is going on here? Come on, tell us. And here's what he says to them. And he answered this way. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Now, the reason he starts this way is because in this time, you link your nationality with your religion. And so he begins with, I'm a Hebrew. This is where I am from. This is my people. This is who I belong to. I'm a Hebrew, and I worship 
The Lord, the God of heaven, the phrase used to describe Yahweh, as we call it in the Old Testament, the God of the Bible, the God of heaven who made the sea, it's about to consume us, and the land upon which I wish I was standing right now. This terrifies the sailors. This terrifies them. They are so afraid now. Even more so than before Jonah answered them. Like, this is not helpful, Jonah. You mean the God of heaven, the one whose reputation it is that he got rid of all the people in the promised land, the one who eliminated all these people from before the Israelites, that God of heaven? You belong to him, and he's against us? Like the lot was cast to you, and he's angry at you? And his wrath is going to come down on this ship in the middle of the ocean? I am now terrified, and that's what the text says. Now they went from being afraid to being flat-out terrified of the situation. One of them is like, guys, we need to know what is going on. They ask him, Jonah, what have you done? What have you done? And at that, I don't know what happened, but there's no answer. And here's what I think may have happened. You ask the question, what have you done? And there's another flash of lightning and crack of thunder and the wave comes over the deck. I don't know what it was, but there's no answer recorded because the text says the sea grew rougher and rougher, like the storm kept coming and it just got worse and worse. And there's no time to answer what have you done. It doesn't even matter what Jonah has done at this point. He has done something. Then they ask the real question that really matters and they say, Jonah, what do we need to do to you so that we will live? That's what I really want to know in truth. I really don't care what you've done, but I want to live. So what have you done? What do we need to do to you? And Jonah responds this way, and he says this, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Now there is no record that Jonah asked God about this. This is just Jonah's response to the question. Maybe Jonah prayed, I don't know, there's no record of Jonah praying in Jonah chapter 1. Maybe Jonah just responded with what he knew was right. And here's what he knew as a prophet. When you sin, you deserve to die. That's the Old Testament theology, it's biblical teaching. That when we sin, the penalty for our sin is death. And so if you want to cut to the chase in the middle of a deck of a ship that's about to blow apart and be pulled apart and ripped apart in the middle of the worst storm that these sailors have ever encountered, if you want to cut to the chase, you want to know what to do, I'll tell you what to do. I sinned, I deserve to die. Throw me overboard and the sea will become calm. And I might just say to Jonah, Jonah, just jump over yourself, buddy. But that's not what we see. There's this request to throw me overboard. And it's an interesting request because certainly he could have jumped himself. But he didn't. He says, throw me overboard. Be a part of this process. To which the sailors are now put in a very interesting position because they're put in the position that Jonah was put in at the beginning of the chapter. Now the sailors are in the position where they are around someone who deserves God's wrath And they are asked, what am I going to do? Like, what should I now do? 
Just like Jonah was put in the position where the Ninevites deserve God's wrath, and he was asked to do something, and he ran. And now the sailors are put in a position where they're relating to someone who deserves God's wrath, and they have to decide, what are we going to do? And here's what the text says they did in verse 13. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land. So instead, these quote-unquote pagan sailors who each prayed to their own God, who don't have in their own history a respecter of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, they decide, I don't want to do that to that prophet. Let's try something else. Let's row back to land. You can't really row against the decree of heaven. You can't really push back against what God has determined will be. Jonah is finding that out, and the sailors find that out. The sea was too rough. It was too impossible. This storm that is significant was not going to have their oars in it and expecting them to get where they want to go. No, the storm was in control, and they were not. And so they're left with a situation of, what do I do? They decided, well, we have no other choice at this point, but we have to do what Jonah suggested. And they take Jonah and they throw him overboard. And just before they do it, they have this little moment where they say, God, please don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. Because their fear is not so much that they're killing an innocent man, but their fear is of the retribution of a wrath of God who might be even more angry with them if this guy actually is innocent. So their fear of Yahweh is significant, and yet they throw him and say, God, please, 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 don't be angry. Don't be angry, but we think he has to go. And so Jonah gets thrown overboard, and the text says then the sea grew calm. Now, there's no way, I don't think, that it grew calm immediately upon him splashing into the water. If it did, I might say, if I'm Jonah, hey, can you pull me back up again? There has to be some time that elapses as the sea grows calm and Jonah begins drowning. I mean, and he goes out of sight in a flash in the middle of a storm like this. And as the storm grows calm, the sailors decide we need to respond. And here's what the text says about what they did. At this, when the storm grew calm, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. And here is what Jonah was afraid would happen to the Ninevites. That if they were to encounter the grace of God in the middle of the wrath of God, that they would turn to him. And this is just what the sailors did. And Jonah, if he would have been there, he would have been like, oh. God, I know that you are like this. You deliver your grace where wrath should be. And people turn to you in that time. And I don't want to give that opportunity to my greatest enemy. And that's what the sailors have on that deck. And any time that people run into the grace of God where wrath should come, hearts are changed. Meanwhile, Jonah floundering in the sea, there's one verse left in chapter 1, Jonah floundering in the sea, starting to go under, unable to tread water anymore, not training for a mission in which he's going to stay afloat for days on end in the ocean. 
He's the recipient of God's grace in a special way. And the text will tell you that God appoints. In other words, sovereignly dictates or directs that a fish, we might call it a whale, comes and swallows Jonah and becomes a safe haven, a subterranean salvation for Jonah. God saves Jonah from his own punishment, brings salvation and delivers him from certain death at the same time. And so what about this fish tale as the story of chapter 1 comes to the end? What about all that? A story that you have probably heard before, maybe not thought about, maybe in that detail, and as it moves through seeing the movement of God in that, but what about that? A couple things, if I can say with you. Number one, we are all Jonah. We're all Jonah. I guess you could do hashtag I am Jonah. I don't know, maybe that would work. I'm, I'm Jonah. Here's what I mean by that. Christians, let me speak specifically to those who call themselves Christians. Christians believe that because of what the Bible teaches, that we've sinned. And because of that, sin deserved to be separate from God. And Jonah has sinned. Like, this is a, a deal for him. But I find myself there with him. Like, that experience of Jonah running from the things that God wants him to do is my experience too. Sure, it looks different, but it's the same thing. That Christians believe that all of us have sinned. That every one of us have sinned. And if we aren't sure if we believe the Bible or not, let me just encourage you to visit the nursery for a minute or two and watch Little Hearts in Action. We never have to teach children to be selfish. We only have to teach them to share. Because it's woven into the heart to be interested in ourselves more than others. It's woven into our hearts to be interested in us more than you and myself more than you. That's part of what Christians would say is the sin nature in us. It doesn't ruin us totally, but it does impact us deeply. So we're all there. Like we're all in sin is what I believe. And therefore, because of that, I believe what also Jonah believed, that because I'm in sin, I deserve to be thrown overboard. Like, I deserve to die. I mean, that, that's the net effect of my sin and the impact of that on God. Now, here's what we also know. God, as demonstrated in this story, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and loving kindness. That is God. Yes, I'm like Jonah, but look at what God has done even in the chapter 1. Slow to anger, even to Jonah. Abounding in loving kindness. This is the God that we serve. And so here's how this works. If I'm like Jonah, and I myself am a sinner, and I've experienced the grace of God in the middle of what should be wrath for me, I have to then face another question and face another issue. And that is, how will I interact with people who I don't like and who are outside maybe of the grace of God? Who will I inter how will I take the experience that I had with God when I, in the middle of my wrath, experience His grace? How will that impact me with other people? Like, am I going to be the vessel that takes this that I experienced with him and run that out to all the people that I interact with? 
And here's what I think is the point of this story. Let me put it this way. If God has shown mercy to us, we have no leverage to withhold mercy from others. Right? Like, if God has shown mercy in the middle of my sin, like, I don't have leverage to say, let me make a list of some people who don't get the mercy that I think God might want to show to them. Like, I don't have the leverage, I don't have a platform to stand on to say, these people who hold these views, this family member, this leader, this person in my school, let's start to name it. Let me ask the question this way. Who do you think it would be okay, God, for me to put on the no mercy list? Like, can you help me fill that one out? No mercy, no compassion, no love. Can you help me fill that one out, God? It's foolishness, isn't it, even to propose that. And yet, do we not all sometimes keep a list like that? Because are we not all offended? Have we not all been crossed? Have we not all had someone with good intentions turn on us? Or someone we trusted betray us? Like, have we not all had those experiences, someone who's just crossed us the wrong way for one reason or another, whether we know them or not, whatever. And have we not all yet had the experience of the grace of God where wrath should come? Like, if, if you are sitting here, if you're listening later online, if you, if you are listening to this and you've had the experience where the grace of God has come into your heart and life, where wrath should have been. What what leverage is left for me or for you to withhold the same mercy and compassion, even from the vilest offender? Like, what right do I have? What right do I have to say, God, I'm good enough to be saved, but I don't know that this other person is. And so my question is the same one that I started last week with that I want to push on a little bit again this week. And that is this question. God, who do you want me to have compassion on? Who do you want me to have compassion on? Who is it that I uniquely have the opportunity to influence? Who maybe have I been holding a grudge against? Who I've been unable to show your love or compassion? Who do I regularly gossip about? Who do I speak negatively about without really trying to resolve things? Who is it that I'm happy not to see or talk with if I run into them? Who is it that I wish would just... Mm. All right. Now I get that. I get all those feelings. But I'm going to ask again, if I've experienced the grace of God where wrath should be, what leverage do I have to withhold that grace from others? I'm telling you, it's a hard question. And here's Jonah. In the belly of this whale, having just experienced a picture of God's grace in the middle of where wrath should be, And in the middle of that whale, in the middle of that belly of that whale, Jonah comes to again, and he begins to compose a song or a poem or a prayer. 
And in that prayer, he says something so profound. I'm telling you, it is a life changer, what he says. And that we are going to cover next week. In Jonah chapter 2, for God so loved the terrorists. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in this book and to see again the story of your compassion. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would give us courage to allow our hearts to grow a little soft where for years perhaps they have been hard towards some people. Give us a fresh reminder of the fact that we are all like Jonah and deserve nothing but your wrath. Nothing but to be on the vessel and have it be blown apart. But yet where your wrath should have continued, and rightfully so, you extend grace deeply to us. And so, Father, may we be moved not necessarily by the other person being right, but by a fresh recognition of our own position before you. Motivate us to love well because of what we have been saved from. Give us courage where that is difficult. Father, I pray for those of us this morning who are just wrestling with that whole concept of even your salvation that you can be a God who saves. I pray that this morning we can have that conversation, whether with me or with a friend who brought them or whoever, that we can get that conversation on the table and talk again about the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal salvation. So, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your grace in this book of Jonah, and we believe that you are a God who is deeply compassionate, deeply loving, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And we thank you for that. And it's to you that we pray and we ask your help in Jesus' name.